And he's basically introduced me uh, so far. My name is Pete Moore. I am part of the leadership team at church called The Gathering that meets in the Leatherhead Community Hub uh, in North Leatherhead. And some of you may know me. I can see some familiar faces here. Some of you don't. But it is great. It's a real privilege to be able to share with you um, tonight. And I wanted to start also, Nico's mentioned it as well, but just to say a word of appreciation for you guys as a community because... What is happening in North Leatherhead wouldn't be possible without the support, the encouragement of other people. And I know St. George's particularly has been incredibly generous with things like finances, uh, with volunteering, with support in general, but also with prayer. And genuinely, when, when I hear people say we're praying for you and they mean it, some people just say it and they don't really mean it, but when people say that we're praying for you and they genuinely mean it, that for me really does go deep in terms of appreciating that because it's... It, Without it, we're basically lost, aren't we? So keep praying. <laughs> and please come on down for a cup of coffee at the hub. It's open from Tuesdays to Saturdays, 9 till 2, Tom. Is that right? There you go. So it's open now. Come on down, grab a coffee. It's good coffee. Um, and you guys would be most welcome. But as Nico's also mentioned, today is Trinity Sunday. We're looking particularly at the fatherhood of God. Uh, again, it takes a bit of a brave man to even begin to try in the space of 20 minutes to address that. But I'm going to do my best, and it's going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour. So please, I'm not going to be looking at one particular passage. It's going to be a number of different places. So if you, if you get lost or anything like that, just don't worry about it too much. Um, I'll send my notes out later if you want it. But we sang a song earlier, which is basically based around the creed, wasn't it? I believe in God. Not just I believe in God, but I believe in God the Father. And I was struck as I was kind of getting ready for today that this ancient confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that's said by millions and millions of believers across the world, across generations, the kind of the bedrock, the litmus test of Christian orthodoxy for 2,000 years, begins with those words. I believe in God. But not just I believe in God. I believe in God the, the Father. I believe in God the Father. Of all the things that could be said about God, of all the things that could be said about a deity, his power, his might, his wisdom, his glory, his holiness, our creed begins with I believe in God the Father. It starts off, the foundation point is the fatherhood of God. And talking about fatherhood, as I get older, more and more people say, you look just like your father. And I think it's because I'm less hair on top and more grey in my beard. And I was at a funeral recently and uh, someone else said that again. But they mentioned it's not just kind of physical look, they talk about speech, mannerisms, uh, sense of humor, personality, all these things. And my dad was Irish, and Irish blood run, runs through my veins. Any other Irish people in here? Irish heritage, we've got a few. Yeah, sometimes they can be seen as kind of the happy-go-lucky, kind of Irish spirit. And that's one side of it, but there's also kind of a melancholy side as well. And it, it can be both and, or one or the other. 
And I think on my side, on my dad's side, there was more of a kind of a melancholy bent that I inherited from him too. And I don't know if it's because of that. I don't want to blame the Irish for everything, but I, I, I began to question things from quite a young age around what's the meaning and the purpose of life? You know, those normal teenage things. Why am I here? What's the purpose? Is there any value and meaning to my existence in this universe? And I genuinely struggle with these things. And more recently, I was reading, there's a quote from a guy named Blaise Pascal, who was this 17th century philosopher, theologian, mathematician. And he was describing people who lived in ignorance of God, who were kind of wrestling with those same things that I was wrestling with, about why am I here? Is there purpose? Is there meaning? Why am I here now rather than then? Why here in this place rather than that place over there? Looking out into kind of the, the cosmos and asking, is, who out there ordained me to be here at this time? Is anybody out there? Did anybody ordain me or am I just kind of random chance? And the little quote ended, up with, ended with these words. These are kind of the words spoken from those who are wrestling with these things. He said, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. And that little phrase just kind of resonated in my heart. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. And I think part of the reason it kind of echoed around inside of me was because I, I recognized it. It kind of articulated something for me that was true of me, but it put it into words. And it was, it was that kind of that nihilism, that dread that haunted me through my teenage years around meaning and purpose. And I struggled with it for quite a while. And it had a profoundly negative effect on me because I didn't, at that point I wasn't finding any answers. And so I ended up week after week drinking myself into an oblivion, uh, self-harming, alienating myself from friends and family, getting kicked out of sixth form at Fairfield School, getting kicked out of Brooklyn's College, at a real loss, and really kind of, what is the point? If there is no point, there is no value, and if there is no value, I'm not going to engage in everything. I'm just going to give up. And thankfully, I'm not in that place anymore. <laughs> but I know it. I know that space. I know those feelings. And I remember when coming to Scripture and realizing that Scripture didn't share those same fears that I had. And there's a psalm, Psalm 8, and in Psalm 8, the psalmist Instead of going, he's looking up into the cosmos. He's looking up into the infinite spaces. And he's not filled with any kind of, a kind of existential dread. He says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the sun and the stars that you've established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. When those who are kind of more ignorant of who God was, we're looking up into the cosmos, they were filled with this dread, the same dread that I knew. But when the psalmist looks up, he looks at the same cosmos. He's not filled with dread. He finds there a spiritual being who knows and cares and is mindful of human beings in our smallness, in our finiteness. He finds a deeply personal, caring God who is powerfully present in and through and over all things. The psalmist knew that behind creation was a creator and the creed, the creed tells us that that creator 
is God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Because of that, we don't need to be afraid. I didn't need to be afraid of these kind of, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces because it wasn't eternal silence. God has spoken to us. Book of Hebrews says he's, God, he's spoken to us in many ways in the past, various ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. The one revealed through scripture, the God that pervades all things, that creates all things, that holds all things together, is the one that we can call Abba, Father. And discovering God, knowing about God is one thing, but knowing about God as a father is another thing completely. And this really came home to me about 13 years ago, 7 a.m. on November 15th, 2009. And I was getting ready for work, I was doing what I normally do, I had my Bible, and I was reading through Ephesians chapter 1. And it was one of those moments where undeniably God speaks to you through his word. It was a moment where a certain passage of scripture just came alive, it just uh, it almost kind of illuminated on the page and it was the passage in Ephesians chapter 1 where he's talking about an inheritance the inheritance we have as children of God and I remember the kind of the thought process that went through my mind it's like God's speaking to me about inheritance but there's been no death and then I, I kind of resolved it within myself before I went to work by kind of theologizing it saying well it's about Christ's death and Christ's death and because of that we have an inheritance and all of that is 100% true so that was November 15th, November 16th, correct me if I'm wrong, because my, my wife's much better at dates and things and corrects me when I do get it wrong, but November 16th, was, we woke up 5.55 uh, in the morning, which was a number that was quite significant to us uh, personally, to one of the loudest thunderclaps I'd ever heard, and it went from kind of being dead asleep to dead awake, like instantly. And I thought, that's odd, that's a bit strange. Nothing else went, kind of happened beyond that. Went about my day, went to work. And then about four o'clock later that afternoon, I got a call from my mum saying, uh, Dad's had an accident, he's gone to hospital. They don't think it's too serious. I was like, okay, better get over there. So I dropped my work, went off to the hospital. Turned out it was actually quite serious. Uh, he'd fallen and he'd hit, fallen down some flight of stairs, hit his head. Uh, they put him into an induced coma and he died four days later. And the significance of that is... November 16th was the day of my birthday. So the day before, November 15th, God's speaking to me about inheritance. I'm having this wrestle within myself. It's like, well, there's been no death. November 16th, the next day, my dad has a fatal accident. And that, there's more to that story, but that's for another time. But it, it began a journey for me around these things of kind of the fatherhood of God and, and sonship and adoption and inheritance. And so I began to dig in, into scripture and, and find out what, what's scripture saying about these things. God seems to be highlighting it. He seems to be doing something in my family around these issues. So what does scripture say about the things? And I want to trace four things through the whole Bible in a few minutes time. So like I said, this is a bit of a whistle stop tour. But there's four things as I've reflected on it associated with the fatherhood of God. The first one is identity. The second one is intimacy. The third one is inheritance. And then the fourth one is rest. 
I don't know if we can, if we have a, a slide for that. Uh, yeah, there we go. Identity, intimacy, inheritance, and rest. And these things, I think, are there from the beginning of the story. From the very start in the book of Genesis, when God said that he creates humanity in his image and in his likeness, there are a number of things bound up, but that's a rich idea. But I'm arguing that one of the things that's held there is the idea that image, being made in the image and likeness of God, part of that is reflected in the idea of being children of God. The reason I think that is if you jump over a few chapters later to Genesis chapter 5, it says that Adam and Eve had their own child in their image and their likeness. Something about being made in the image and likeness of someone reflects this child-parent relationship. We talk, don't we, about so-and-so is the spitting image of their parent. The child reflects something of the parent, the image, the likeness of God. Adam and Eve from the very beginning were kind of the sons and the daughters of God. This is actually made explicit later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, where Luke traces Jesus' genealogy, and it begins with Jesus. Jesus, son of David, son of Saul, son of Saul, son of Saul, son of Saul. All the way back, when we get all the way back to Adam, and it says, Adam, son of God. Luke explicitly calls Adam a son of God. This is his, Adam and Eve, this was their identity from the very start. God, the eternal father, creates humanity in his image and likenesses. You are my children. And out of that place, they shared an intimacy with God. God fashions them from the dirt of the ground, breathes into their nostrils the breath of life. And he walks with them in intimacy in the garden. So you've got identity, you've got intimacy, and there's an inheritance for them because they are his kids. He says, subdue the earth, rule over it on my behalf, steward creation, fill the earth and subdue it. Their identity is children of God. They have an inheritance because of that. And it's as wide and as high and as deep as creation. But I think one of the important things to notice is that even though they've got this great task kind of set out before them, it's no small thing, is it, to rule the earth on God's behalf? But what day were Adam and Eve created on? Does anyone know? The sixth day. What happens on the seventh day? Sabbath. So the first day, the first experience that humanity has isn't labor. It isn't working, it's not stewarding, it's not toiling, it's rest. Humanity's first experience after being created was rest. Everything else flowed out of that place, I'm arguing. Their identity had been given to them, they were walking with intimacy with God. They had a task to fulfill but it began from a place of rest. And we know the story, don't we? We know Genesis 3, that they don't do particularly well. They don't live out of that identity. They want more than that. They want to be like God. And so they rebel against God and the kind of the forces of sin and death and darkness invade creation. Everything goes wrong. Sin corrupts everything. But God doesn't give up on humanity. He doesn't give up on the partnership with humanity. He calls a people. He calls Abraham and his family Israel to kind of be a new humanity, to partner with him again for the sake of the world. 
And that, there's a renewal of that identity as well. So if you look at the book of Exodus, the, the themes of sonship run all the way through the book of Exodus. Who is it that's thrown into the river Nile to be killed? The sons. Who is raised in Pharaoh's household as a son? Moses. He rejects it. He goes off into the wilderness. God calls him to go back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, not just to let my people go. He says, let my firstborn son go. And what happens on the 10th plague as a result of him refusing to let Israel, his firstborn son, go? The death of Egypt's firstborn sons. The themes of sonship run all the way through that book. But one of the clear things is that Israel has an identity as the firstborn son of God. There's a renewal of that kind of original human identity to be the children of God. So there's a renewal of identity, but not just identity, there's also intimacy. But now it's because of sin, it's there in a more limited sense. God wants to dwell again amongst his people, but he can't do because he would, he would destroy them in his holiness. And so he comes to them in a limited capacity. The tabernacle, the temple. He's still there, he's still dwelling. But only certain people can go to certain places at certain times of the year because of the, the, the corruption of sin. Identity, intimacy, and inheritance is also there. God calls his people out of slavery into their sonship, and he says, again, I've got an inheritance for you. Out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, and the promised land is there explicitly in scripture a number of times. It's described as their inheritance. But it's not just for them. It's for the sake, again, of the whole world. When God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations. So that universal spread through the kind of the family of God, the children of God, that they receive the blessing, the identity, and through them, the blessing then flows to the ends of the earth. Identity, intimacy, inheritance, and also rest. Because one of the questions that kind of haunts scripture a little bit is this idea of election. Why did God choose Abraham and Israel out of all the peoples of the earth? Was it because they were worth it? Because they were so righteous, they were so powerful, they were so wise, they were so wealthy. Is that why he chose them? God says explicitly, no, it wasn't to do any of that. I simply set my love upon you. I chose you, not because of anything in you, but because of my grace. And so for, even for Abraham and for Israel, their beginning point was from a place of grace and rest. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. God's grace met with them in that call. And out of that place of grace, they were then to become the people of God, the family of God. But just like Adam and Eve, they repeated that same cycle, that same problem. They too fell into sin a number of times, cry out to God, God rescues them. They say, I'll never do it again. They do it again, they cry out to God. This cycle, this pattern 
in the Old Testament. And so they look forward to this day when the Messiah would come and he'd put everything right. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, doesn't he? The eternal, talking of the Trinity, God the Father, living in perfect union and love and will and purpose with God the Son. But it says, Galatians says, when the fullness of time, God sent his Son into the world. So Jesus comes as the Messiah. And there's this kind of this two-sided thing to the sonship of God when it comes to Jesus. On the one hand, he is literally the Son of God. In his nature, in his being, he is God the Son, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, he is God the Son in the sense that he is the embodiment of what humanity was meant to be, what Adam and Eve were meant to be, what Israel was meant to be. As their Messiah, he was their representative. So he was Son of God in that respect. And those two things are held together, the sonship of God, the divine and the human elements of sonship are held together in Christ. And what was on the kind of the outskirts, the margins of Israel's spirituality in the Old Testament suddenly becomes front and center in Jesus. We talk about identity. John opens his gospel, talks about Jesus being God's only son, the beloved. Over and over and over again, it describes Jesus as the son of God. And out of that place of identity, he lived in intimacy with the Father. Again, the opening of John's gospel describes Jesus as God's only son of God, only God's son, who is close to the Father's heart. Jesus speaks of the love of the Father, of the Father showing him what he's doing and working with the Father. He says he's the only one who's seen the Father. And note this, that every prayer of Jesus in the Gospels begins with an address to God as Father, except one. Every prayer of Jesus to God in the Gospels begins with an address to him as Father, Abba, Father. The one prayer that doesn't is when he's hanging on the cross and he's quoting scripture and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus related to God as Abba, as Father, in a profoundly unique and beautiful way. But it was in Jesus that we see what humanity was always meant to do. He's the original image of, he is the image of the invisible God. He shows us what that relationship should look like. And it's about identity. It's about intimacy, but it's also about inheritance. It's about purpose. John 3, 16, the famous verse is, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, but for a purpose, in order that whoever believes in his name may not perish, but have eternal life. The Galatians 4 one, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law. 1 John 3, 8 says, the son of God was manifested for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. Psalm 2, which is this kind of messianic psalm, describes that moment when God says uh, to the son, I've set my king on Zion on my holy hill. I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. 
Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Again, that same theme that runs all the way through scripture from the beginning, Adam and Eve, fill the whole earth and subdue it. Israel, I will bless you and you'll be a blessing to all nations. Jesus comes, he fulfills everything. He says, the nations are my inheritance. That's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, he says, go into all the world and make disciples. Acts 1.8 begins with, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. So in Christ, we see the fulfillment of that kind of, the idea of what it means to be a child of God. And it's fundamentally identity, intimacy, inheritance, and also rest. But because before Jesus has done any of that stuff, before he's worked a miracle, before he's been preaching, teaching, casting out demons, challenging injustice, welcoming the poor, before he's done any of that, what happens at his baptism? He goes down into the water. He comes up from the water. The heavens are open. The voice of the Father speaks and he says, you are my son, the beloved in whom I'm well pleased before he's done anything. His identity is established. The affirmation of the Father, the Divine Father comes at the start. It doesn't come after he's gone through the cross at the other side. Okay, now you've done it. Now you've, you've done enough to be my son. At the end, it doesn't come at the end, it comes at the start. Because it's from that place that we, we live and breathe and have our being. It's the equivalent to the Sabbath rest on the seventh day or God choosing uh, Abraham and Israel just because of his grace and his love. It's there from the start. But what about us? All of us bear the image of God. It's one of the central tenets of Christian teaching of what it means to be human. We have inherent value dignity and worth because we carry and we bear the image of God. But we mar that image through our sin, don't we? We fall short in many ways. Which is why Ephesians, going back to that book, it has some incredibly harsh language. It describes us in our former state, not as children of God, but of children of wrath. The same book that can talk about us being children of God with inheritance. He says you used to be children of wrath. Going back to John's gospel. To those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right, the authority to become children of God. There's a number of passages we could talk about when it comes to that. That this now is our identity. We have been adopted, we've been born again, we've been invited in to the family of God, a restored humanity. This is our identity now. We used to be this, but now in Christ, we are this. And with the identity comes the intimacy. Romans 8 says that we've received the spirit of adoption 
by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The same cry that was on the lips of Jesus becomes our cry because this, the same spirit that kind of empowered and lived in Jesus now lives in us. And it's that same spirit that rises up within us and cries out, Abba, Father. It bears witness with our spirit that we are now children of God. Romans 8.29 says that Jesus was the firstborn uh, of many in order that we might have a large or be part of a large family. Ephesians 2 says that we have access to the Father through the Spirit now. So we've received a new identity. We have an intimacy that is beyond comprehension, but we also have an inheritance. Galatians again says, because you are children, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God. We are co-heirs with Christ because we are brothers and sisters with Christ in that same family. And the inheritance that we've got is no longer the promised land, but it is the very kingdom of God. And wrapped up in that is that purpose again to continue the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. None of that stuff, none of the blessings that come to us through the gospel come as wages. None of it is as a result of anything that we've done to deserve it. There's a massive difference between something that's given to you as a wage and something that's given to you as an inheritance. One you earn and one is a free gift. New Testament is clear, all of this comes to us as a gift. Second Timothy 1.9, God saved and called us not according to our works but according to his grace and his own purpose. Ephesians 2, we've been saved by grace through faith, not because of anything we've done. These great things of justification through faith. But the same chapter that says that we weren't saved by our good works then goes on to say that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for our good works. There's still a purpose, there's still a plan. Uh, There's still something for us to be doing. But none of that again is something that we've earned. It comes to us freely and it must be out of that place of grace and gift that we work and labor for the plans and the purposes of God in the world. And if you get that order mixed up, if you don't start with rest and with grace, then you get yourself into all sorts of trouble. But I think sometimes it's a bit of a default for us. I find myself have to keep recalibrating my perspective, my own relationship with God. Sometimes I feel better about my relationship with God if I'm doing better. But that's not the way it should be. I come back to that place. It's not about what I've done. It's all about Christ has done for me. Receive that identity afresh. I'm no longer that. I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm now a child of God. I'm a saint. I'm in Christ Jesus. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm presented before him holy and blameless and irreproachable. I have access now to the Father because of what Christ has done for me. I allow that spirit to bubble up within me that cries out, Abba, Father. 
That same voice that came to Jesus in the baptism, now I'm in Christ. That same voice says, you are my son, the beloved. And you are more pleased. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave it there for a moment. Other than to say, I'm aware that this topic, this theme can raise all sorts of questions for people. I've had my own experiences, my own journey with my own earthly father that's affected the way that I relate to God as father. I have no idea what your relationship with your earthly father was like, whether it was good, it was bad, it was indifferent, it wasn't, didn't even exist, I don't know. But I'm aware that it can affect how we relate to God. And all of us have to go on the journey to rediscover what it truly means to call God a father. What that really means. Is he really good? Is he really trustworthy? Is my identity really come from him? Does he have a plan and a purpose for me in my life? And that is a bit of a healing process. It's going to be a lifelong one for me, I'm sure. I'll never exhaust the fatherhood of God. But I, I know more now than I did 13 years ago. And in all the complexity and all the mystery of this world that we live in, all the questions that we have, genuinely one of the things I keep coming back to is the simplicity of that prayer, have a father. That's it. Trust in God. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm, I'm going to invite, if anybody wants, I know there's a ministry team here, people who come and pray for you. But if any of this resonates, anything around identity, around intimacy, about inheritance or rest, I'm going to invite you up in just a moment to receive prayer. But let, let, me, let me just pray for us as I close.